Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Good morning. Uh, This morning, uh, we have the privilege of being in an incredible text. Uh, In Philippians Chapter 1, verses 21 to 25, and uh, I was talking to Dr. Aiken and Dr. Marino before the chapel service. This actually happens to be their favorite text in all the scriptures, Philippians 1, 21. Um, and Dr. Marino happens to have a portion of it tattooed on his arm. So uh, grab your Bibles or grab Dr. Marino's arm, and let's go to Philippians chapter, 20, verse, chapter 1, verse 21. And let me pray uh, for the Spirit's help. Father, I have nothing to offer these people this morning. I'm just dirt that you put together and breathe life into. And God, though I am a rebellious sinner, God, I pray that you would somehow use me and use your word to challenge and exhort these people. Spirit of God, I know you reside in me. Use me, God, and use this word to sharpen us and make us look more and more like Christ. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. How would you feel if you knew you were going to die in one minute? In 60 seconds, your life is going to be over. 50 seconds. What emotions are you feeling? No phone calls, no goodbyes. Your life's over in 40 seconds. You know what's crazy to me? Something that is ubiquitous across the human experience, death, something that could imminently happen to any one of us right now is something we so infrequently talk about or think about or discuss. And death is a problem that every person deals with. Uh, Ernest Becker talks about this uh, in his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Denial of Death. And Becker, an atheist, speaks of death this way. He says, man is literally split in two. He has an awareness of his own splendid uniqueness in that he sticks out of nature with a towering majesty. And yet, he goes back into the ground a few feet in order to blindly and dumbly rot and disappear forever. It is a terrifying dilemma to be in and have to live with. Death is a terrifying dilemma to be in and have to live with. And culture gives us three options on how to deal with death. Option number one, we can deny death, which Becker talks about in his book. And basically what that means is just ignore it. Pretend like it doesn't happen. Well, the problem with that 
is that every life comes with a death sentence. And so I know we may be distracting ourselves with uh, our career and hobbies, but death is coming. And ignoring it doesn't seem like a good option. Culture gives us a second option. We can hasten death, commit suicide. And this is what many atheists and philosophers over the past hundred years have chosen. Death looms over them. They don't want death to have control over them, so they choose to end their life. Well, that's certainly not a good option. As Becker says, we we stand out of nature with a towering majesty. There's an eternal nature to the human spirit, so suicide doesn't seem like a good option on how to deal with death. And finally, culture offers us a third option, to cheapen death. And this is the one you see on Facebook. When someone dies, we say things like, oh, he's in a better place now. Or, Or she's resting now. Well, the problem with that option is that's not based in any rationale. There's no facts behind what you're saying. You're just saying that to appease your sorrow. No, culture does not give us many good options on how to deal with death. But brothers and sisters, we have incredible news this morning. Christ gives us a new option. In him, we can defeat death. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. And there are three main points to this sermon and this text that Paul here tells Christians life is a temporary mission for Jesus, death is an eternal gain with Jesus, and thirdly, since life is a mission, since death is a gain, sacrifice your life. And as we jump into the text, you'll see Paul, just a little bit about the setting, is under house arrest, likely in Rome, So he doesn't know whether he's going to live and be set free or killed by the Romans. So let's jump to verse 21. Paul says in a soliloquy of sorts, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The English here doesn't fully capture the beauty behind the the original Greek, but essentially what Paul is saying is, you could translate this as, life on earth is a temporary missions trip for Jesus, and death is eternal bliss with Jesus. And what, what Paul's doing here in this verse 21, he's offering a good but better comparison. Life's good, death's better. John Piper calls this the ultimate win-win scenario. Life in service to Christ or death with him. And, and we see just in this one verse a total infatuation with Christ that Paul has. Paul sees his life and his death as tools that Jesus gets to use. And this outlook made Paul unstoppable. I mean, can, can you imagine a conversation between Paul and the Roman guards. I mean, they're just trying to torment him and imprison him. Just imagine they say, Paul, we're gonna kill you. And Paul would just respond, death is a game. I get to be with Jesus, that's fine. Well, well, Paul, we're gonna let you live then. And Paul would respond, living is fruitful labor for Christ, great. Well, Paul, we're gonna make you suffer. 
Well, I consider the sufferings of this present world not worth comparing to the glory that will one day be revealed. I'd gladly suffer for the name of Jesus. I'd be so annoyed with this guy. What do you do with this dude? Well, brothers and sisters, this is normal biblical Christianity, this mindset. How do we get there? How do we get there? Well, I would ask you, have you, like Paul, had an encounter with grace? Have you had an encounter with the gospel of grace? I grew up in a, uh, a Muslim home. Not a lot of people know that about me. Uh, if you saw some Aladdin complexion in me, it's because my dad is from Jordan in the Middle East. And uh, my mom's white, and so they divorced when I was two years old, and I kind of grew up in separate homes, right? My mom was abused as a kid, so she resented God, didn't talk about God at all growing up. My dad is a fervent, still is, a fervent Muslim. And so what little boy doesn't want to be like their dad, right? So me, wanting to be like my pops, I inundated myself in Islam. I began to follow the five pillars like my dad. And I learned that you do good things to please Allah. You do good things to increase your chances of inheriting eternal life. The idea is that there's a good and bad scale and we want the good to outweigh the bad. And if your good outweighs your bad, then your chances of eternal life are higher. And so I still remember praying five times a day facing Mecca, fasting during the months of Ramadan. Uh, I remember giving alms to the poor, taking Arabic classes, learning the Quran. And I still remember the burden. Like I still remember that feeling. Like noon would come, look at the clock, and like, oh, I gotta pray. And I don't wanna pray, but I gotta pray because I don't want God to hate me. I want him to love me. I remember during Ramadan, I'd look at a bag of Cheetos, oh, just one Cheeto. No, 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 I want God to love me. I want to inherit eternal life. I can't eat the Cheetos. I just remember this immense burden of having to earn God's love. And this all culminated to a moment where I was in a mosque uh, on a Friday night, listening to the Imam teach from the Quran. And Imam is a Christian, I mean a, a Muslim preacher. And he was teaching the Quran and I just had all this experience in Islam and it's all culminated in this one moment where I just remember reading the Quran, just thinking about this experience and thinking, as like a nine-year-old kid, a relationship with God should not be this burdensome. Like it shouldn't be this hard. It shouldn't feel this draining. And I just decided, I'm done. I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. You guys know how like there's the rebel church kid? I was the rebel Muslim kid. I would like cuss in the mosque. When they had Quran classes, I would sneak outside and work on my jump shot, uh, the basketball court. Yeah, I, I was done with religion. My mom started dating a guy named Rick. And if your mom has a boyfriend, I feel like his name is probably Rick. I just feel like Rick is a, a mom's boyfriend kind of name. Side note. Uh, so we went to church, she brought me to the kids' ministry, and guys, I still remember the first time I heard about Jesus. 
When you're inundated in a different religious system and you hear about Jesus for the first time, it is such good news. I remember hearing Jesus, they talked about Jesus and the wee little man Zacchaeus. Remember that story? The guy who climbed a tree and Jesus said, I'm having dinner at your place tonight. And after this encounter with Jesus, Zacchaeus says, I'm giving half of everything I own to the poor. I'm paying back everyone what I stole from them. And that piqued my interest. And somebody gave my mom and I the Jesus film and we began to watch Jesus film. And <laughs> I still remember, I remember watching Jesus take the time to talk to prostitutes and lepers and outcasts. And I remember thinking, there's no way this is God. Like you're telling me God became a human and hung out with these people. That's incredible. And I remember when he, when he talked to the Pharisees and he called them a whitewashed tomb. And I was like, oh, those are the dudes in charge. He just fried them. And I remember Jesus carrying a tree up a hill. The creator of the universe carrying a torture device up a hill and willingly laying on that device and letting the little things that he made nail him to it. And, then, and they lifted him up and he hung there in agony. And what did he say? Father, forgive them. And I was in love with Jesus. And after the movie, they had a presentation of the gospel, and they explained that Jesus became our righteousness for us. You didn't have to earn it, but Jesus did it for us. And I gave my life to the Lord, my mom and I together. And that encounter with the gospel of grace changed me. And brothers and sisters, reveling in grace is what enables us to make life a mission and death a gain. I wrote down four comparisons that I found between Islam and Christianity, and I think this would fit in with any other religious system in Christianity. Number one, in Islam, the message was, obey and then you're accepted. But in the gospel, I found, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. In Islam, the motivation was uh, based on fear and insecurity. But in the gospel, a motivation flows from grateful joy in what Jesus has already done. In Islam, criticism was devastating. In the gospel, criticism reveals God's irrational love for me that he would come and die for me anyway. In Islam, the message was work hard and maybe you'll earn acceptance into God's family. But in the gospel, the father says, come home. You're a son now. How do you get where Paul is at? Feast in this gospel of grace. And, and if you're not feasting in the gospel of grace today, if it's just ordinary news for you, if you're satisfying yourself with things on earth rather than living on mission and enjoying Jesus, I'd quote C.S. Lewis to you, the problem is not that your desire for pleasure 
is too strong. Your desire for pleasure is too weak. You're settling for trinkets when you could have the king and enjoy fellowship with him. I love the way John Piper says it. He says, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls their appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. To live is Christ. And Paul continues in verse 22, he says, If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Living is fruitful labor for me. And I just would like to make an exhortation to the pastors in this room or the future pastors, because I know there are many of you here. Never before has ministry been more like being a CEO. Never before has ministry been more like being a celebrity. But Paul is imprisoned. He makes tents for a living. He's not married. He has no kids. He's survived countless turmoil, like shipwrecks and snake bites. He's going to soon be beheaded. A man who has nothing but Jesus Christ cries out to us, living is fruitful labor. To live is Christ. I mean, I would say Paul is a good example of what the pastorate should look like. And this man in prison tells us, living is fruitful labor. Brothers, ministry is not a platform. It's fruitful labor. Ministry is not about Twitter followers or books or attendance numbers. It's labor for Jesus. Paul exhorts us, let's be a people who see life on earth as a temporary mission full of fruitful labor in response to the gospel of grace. Life is a temporary mission for Jesus. He continues uh, in verse 22. He begins to speak a little bit more about death. And he says, uh, 22b, yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. There are a lot of young people in this room. How many of you have ever heard somebody say, I desire to depart? I want to die. Like a young follower of Jesus say, I want to die and be with Jesus. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that. But we should be a people that yearn for death because we get to be with Christ. Paul, Paul uses an interesting term here uh, in, in verse 22. He can say this because um, he uses the word depart. Uh, he says, my desire is to depart. And it's a really interesting term uh, in the Greek. Uh, essentially, the term depart is a nautical term used by the Greeks when a ship uh, lifted anchor and left and went into the sea. 
And so Paul here is using a euphemism for death. He's essentially saying that death is lifting up anchor, departing from this foreign land, and going back home. Death is not some dark abyss, some black hole. Death is a cruise home. In other places in Scripture, we see Paul refer to death as sleep. They don't say this guy died. They say he fell asleep. For the Christian, no one dies. You just take a nap. In death, we get to be with Christ. We have actual, close, spatial proximity with Jesus. We enter into a kingdom where Jesus is our reigning king, where sin is defeated and we reign with him eternally. Death is a better thing than life for everyone in this room that is in Christ. And so we should be a people that say, I desire to depart. I love Revelation 21.4. It says, uh, he, Jesus, will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Scriptures tell us that there's no death. There's just new life where mourning is gone and Jesus wipes away our tears. Uh, The great preacher Dwight Moody once said, someday you'll read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am right now. Dwight Moody is more alive right now than he ever was on this earth. See, now now death is not an enemy. Death is not a sting. Death is like my car. It takes me where I want to go. Why does Paul say death is better? Because in Jesus we never die. In death we sail off to a better land. We go to sleep and wake up to a better existence with Christ. In Jesus the sting of death is gone and death our enemy has now become our friend. Point number two, death is an eternal gain with Jesus. So, so far we have life is a temporary mission for Jesus. Death is an eternal gain with Jesus. And so Paul has these really good options. Live or die. And he continues in verse uh, 22b. Oh, just go back a second, actually. He says, uh, yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. Paul says he's hard-pressed between living or dying. He's torn between these two options. And I would ask you, are you torn between living or dying? Like, I just want you to imagine you're on a road, right? Just imagine you're on this road, and ahead of you is a fork with two paths, right? And to the left is a path with a sign that says, live. And to the right is a path with a sign that says, die. And you get to choose, okay, I get to go to either way. It's totally up to me. Which do you choose? And the example of Paul here would exhort us that if you chose quickly, if you made a quick decision, then something isn't right in your thinking or theology. 
Because if you easily chose death, even for good reasons, I wanna be with Christ, then you don't understand the vast importance of this life, every single second of this life, as a mission for Jesus. You're not thinking about your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. You're not thinking like, oh, my dad doesn't know the gospel, I gotta preach the gospel to him. I can't go yet, I gotta stay a little longer. And if you easily chose life, well then I would say you don't understand the beauty of of eternity with God. We should be a people that wrestle between the two. Every day, I wanna go home, but I gotta stay, I gotta stay. What does Paul decide that he prefers? He continues in verse 24. He's hard pressed and he says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Why does Paul say he wants to remain on earth? For, he says it is more necessary for you, plural you, for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul says he prefers to remain on earth for the sake of the church. And, and verses 24 and 25 show us that Paul's personal desires are superseded by the needs of the body. What he wants is subjugated under the needs of the church. And this is a timely exhortation to those of us that are seminary students. Because I'm willing to bet most of you didn't come here to be a part of a a church. You came here for seminary. But Paul shows us that the needs of the body take precedence over our career ambitions. We should be willing to sacrifice our ministry pathway to serve our local church. So, though we may have a lot of homework, we should be the first to do childcare. We should be the first to paint the walls. We should be the first people to teach the students because though I want to do this, the needs of my local body take precedence over what I want to do. Will your local church miss you when you're gone? Will they even notice? Will your pastor even notice? I'm pretty sure when Paul left his church, people noticed. Paul gives us an example that the needs of the body are far more important than what we desire to do. The church, the bride of Christ, students, is is not your stepping stone. It's the bride of Christ. Let's serve it in that way. And so to summarize, life is a mission, death is a gain, and Paul shows us because of these things, we can sacrifice our life for others. So I just want to jump in. How can we sacrifice our lives for Jesus? Just some application. When the world rushes out, the church should enter in. When the world rushes out, the church should enter in like Christ entered in for us. We should emulate 
our missionary king by sacrificing our lives and giving up what is what we prefer for the sake of others. Our king who, who traded in a scepter for an apron, who gave up a crown of jewels for a crown of thorns, who left a throne to hang on a cross. Future pastors and future missionaries, we should emulate our missionary king by giving up what we desire and laying our lives down. So let's bring the gospel to unreached nations, even if it may lead to our torture and our death. Let's lead out in orphan care, in service to widows, in taking care of the oppressed, like our missionary king. Let's serve churches not because of the platform they provide, but to shepherd a people. Let's give to global missions in a way that hurts our budgets and strips us of our luxuries. Let's never truly retire from the ministry. I mean, Christians retiring and going to live at the beach to relax doesn't make sense. It's like Jeff Gordon putting his car in neutral on the final leg of the Daytona 500. He would never do that. And we should never truly take a break on earth and retire. And why can we sacrifice ourselves? Because life is a mission and death has no sting and we're on earth to give our lives away. I love what uh, Jim Elliott says, the missionary who gave his life uh, to bring the gospel to an unreached people group in South America. He says this, we are so utterly ordinary, so commonplace, while we profess to know a power the 20th century does not reckon with. We are harmless and therefore unharmed. The world cannot hate us. We are too much like its own. Oh, that God would make us dangerous. Oh, that God would make us dangerous. You want to know how you become dangerous? Be willing to sacrifice your life. You're not a threat to any principality or power if there are idols hanging over you. You're dangerous when you're willing to sacrifice your life. Uh, a few years ago, I was in the middle of inner city Baltimore on, on a Saturday night. We were leaving an Orioles game and we missed our exit to the suburbs and so we were stuck in the middle of inner city Baltimore. And I just wanna let you know, inner city Baltimore on a Saturday night, probably not the best place to be. I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, and so we're driving through Lost and we're stopped at a red light, right? And uh, in front of me to the left, I see like debauchery incarnate. It is insane. Like I see a guy who has a pistol hanging out of his belt buckle, just in the middle of the street. Yeah. See, I know, I know we're in the South and that's pretty normal for you all, but me up North, that's not normal. Like everyone here has a gun, it's scary. Like I meet old ladies who have purses with guns in them. Like you don't have teeth, but you got a gun? 
Well, in Maryland, there's a no-carry law, so you can't have a gun, and so he's sitting there, and it's obvious he's, like, protecting his corner because right behind him is a drug deal, like an obvious drug deal, like not subtle at all, paper bag, money exchanged, right? And also, I see on the left, there are prostitutes just walking up and down the street, like, soliciting themselves openly. I'm just like, whoa, this is crazy. Uh, the light turns green and we start going like five miles an hour and uh, everyone's looking to the left in the car there's four of us in the car everyone's looking to the left and and all of a sudden I look to the right and I see a man who's sitting on a bus stop bench and his legs are disheveled something doesn't seem to be right with his legs right and he's he's sitting there and all of a sudden I see a group of about 12 men who are all wearing the same thing. They have white t-shirts and black shorts. So it's pretty obvious they're affiliated with the gang, right? And they all of a sudden just surround this man on this bus stop bench. And it's honestly hard to describe still. They began taking turns, kicking him in the face for fun. Just one by one, boom, and just flies back his face and they hit him in the face and he flies back and they're laughing and pointing and the whole street is looking and laughing and so I had just you know begun uh, to really understand the gospel grace and really understand how God left heaven for us. And so just this injustice in me was like, no, this is not okay. And I just yelled out loud, stop the car! And uh, the guy driving looks at me and he's like, heck no. Except he didn't say heck, he said a different word. And uh, I was sitting shotgun, so I unlocked the door, jumped out, pulled out my phone, and I called 911, right? And 911 doesn't go through. I'm like, what the heck is wrong with Baltimore? You can't even call 911? And so I put my phone in my pocket and I'm like, here you go. And I start running to this group of men and they're still hitting this guy. And I just get there and I yell at him, stop! What are you doing? Stop! And uh, this guy who seems to be like the leader of this group says, bro, he don't feel a thing, he's high. And I just tell him, it's, it's not okay. It doesn't matter. You don't just hit an innocent man if he's high. And uh, he had on a huge cross around his neck with diamonds all over it. And I said, bro, do you have any idea what that symbol around your neck stands for? That's the torture device that the creator of the world willingly laid on and was nailed to to give up his life for men like this. And you're wearing the device, the symbol of that sacrifice while you beat him up? What are you doing? And I prepared to be next. I don't know why, but they just got bored and they all left. And so I sit down next to this man and I, I, I can't do justice to describe this. But this man begins to put his arms like this and starts rocking back and forth. 
saying, I hate my life. I hate my life. I hate my life. And he tells me his story how he has a condition with his legs, a medical condition, and he had gotten addicted to the prescription drugs that he takes for his legs. And he was stuck on the street. And I just start sharing the gospel with him, like, bro, there's hope here. Like, it doesn't have to be the end. Like, there's gotta be a church that can take you in. There's gotta be a, you know, a community that can take you in. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, no, there's not. Like, what church would take in a mid-20s African-American man addicted to drugs? How sad is that? So I just pray for him and I give him my phone number. And by that time, the guys in the car pull around and they're in front of me and they're like, get in the car right now, we're leaving. And so I tell him, bro, I, I gotta go. Get in the car, leave. Here's the reason I share this story. The older I get, the better my life on earth gets, the less I want to get out of the car. Like my wife's pregnant with our first child. I got opportunities to speak like this. I'm about to plant a church. My bank account has more money than it's ever had. I don't have to eat at McDonald's every night anymore if I want to go out. Like life on earth is good. Because of that, I really don't want to get out of the car. And the more I'm on earth and the, more, the better my life on earth gets, the more I want to shut the door, lock it, roll up the windows, and crank the AC. Brothers and sisters, we have a king who got out of the car for us who left the comfort of heaven to willingly die and suffer for us. Should we not go do likewise? And what's the worst thing that's gonna happen to us? We die and get, go to paradise with Jesus? So, as we close, I would ask you, Are you willing to get out of the car? And even more specifically, as we close, as you, know, you spend time with the Lord later today, as, uh, we, as I pray in a second, would you be willing to say this to the Lord right now, before the Lord, honestly? God, kill me now if it brings more glory to you. End my life on earth right now if it brings more glory to you because I'd be happy to go be with you. But Lord, if you want me to live, if you want me to leave these doors, make it fruitful labor for you. And let's watch what the Spirit of God does through us, people who see life as a mission, death as a gain, and lay our lives down as a sacrifice like our missionary king. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so prone to idolatry and as Piper says, to nibble at the table of the world. 
God, would you wreck us for your glory? And the irony is, I know this, the irony is that if we give ourselves to you to just just destroy our lives, we find more joy and more peace than anything else the world would ever have to offer us. And so, God, would you make life a mission for us? Help us to emulate your service to us. And God, we trust. Because you conquered death, death will be a gain for us. Death is not our enemy, but our friend. pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.